Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. As I mentioned earlier in the week, before we here at Cracked Rackets can fully turn our attention to the 2021 ATP and WTA seasons, we had one last thing to do, and that, of course, is hand out our awards for the 2020 campaigns. Now, of course, we do this because we like to have a little bit of fun. It's always a good time when you're handing out award shows, firing off takes over things such as who you thought the best player was during during any season, the most improved player, the newcomer of the year. But of course, we also like to do these awards show and make up a couple of awards, get creative, because we want to use these as a way to help tell the story of 2020. When we look back on this season, who were the most notable performers, whether it be because they broke through in a way they hadn't in previous seasons. Maybe it's because of the way they fell off during the season. Maybe there was some sort of off-court drama or, again, some significant result. Some guy rips off a six-week week stretch that we'll all remember when we look back at 2020, of course, off the top of my head, when talking about the 2020 ATP season, you think about something like Andre Rublev, we're all going to remember 2020 as the year he really broke out and asserted himself as one of the top 10 players in the world, but there are so many fantastic aspects of the 2020 season, and of course, to help me break it all down, hand out some awards, there is no person I would rather have than today's guest. You may know him as the host of the Monday Match and analysis show host of three the tennis podcast or you may just know him as my furry eyebrow nemesis Gil Gross. Gil joins me on the show again to hand out some awards now you know some of my make-believe awards such as the Grigor Dimitrov heir apparent award that one's a little bit more self-explanatory but like things such as the suicide squad that didn't go well award things such as the silence do bad award the nobody makes me bleed my own blood award to ask Gil hey I need nominees for you for those categories are from you for those categories, he'd have been like, what? I don't really get it. And so, of course, for some of these awards, much like with Courtney, I offer him up some nominees. I explain the award. He tells me who he thinks should receive it. It's a ton of fun. We always enjoy having Gil on this program. Always enjoy handing out some awards as well. So, without further ado, let's get to our GSP 2020 ATP award show with the fantastic Gil Gross. Joining us to put a cap on the 2020 ATP season, you may know him as the host of a Monday Match Analysis show. You may also know him as the host of 3, the tennis show. He also, of course, does oh so many wonderful things for the Syracuse Athletic Department. I know him as my eyebrowed nemesis, Gil Gross. Gil, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the program. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Grusky. I brewed a cup of coffee just for the occasion. It's 8 p.m. or what am I? It's after 8 p.m., but I wanted to be at my best, so I have a coffee here. Just well, everyone knows it's a staple of a Alex Gruskin podcast. We will never start on time. So, yes, about 8.23 start time for that 8 p.m. That That's about right, I'd say, on average. Yeah, you lost your headphones. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> happens to the best of us. Exactly. But no, always thrilled to join you. And of course, a huge thank you to you. You had me on your, uh, I, I don't know if it was a formal Monday match analysis, but you had me on the show. We gave our wish list for the 2021 ATP season, talked about oh so many guys, oh so many things we'd like to see from them. It was a fantastic show uh, because you were hosting it. So, you know, this will be the worst version, the lesser version of that show. But I wanted to have you on the program to 
talk through some ATP awards. And of course, you already gave your awards on Twitter and you already did a show on that as well. If that informs your commentary today, of course, that is always a great thing. But what we did is I came up with my award ballot. And I like to say at these uh, start of these award shows, I mentioned it uh, on the WTA award show I did with Courtney Wynn as well. My award ballot uh, tries to reflect the narrative of the 2020 season. When I look back, what are the things, the players, the moments that I'm going to remember most that I think need to be remembered most to most accurately tell the story of the season? Of course, this uh, ATP award show here on the podcast will weave in some real awards, player of the year, most improved newcomer, and then a bunch of fake ones as well. So we can talk about all the big hitting categories. Of course, some of these awards will go faster than others, but uh, overall, I rather than ask you, hey, I made up this award that I have the exact specifications in mind for that you couldn't actually actually know because it's not a real award. It came from my brain. Uh, I have a bunch of nominees for you. We'll talk through them. You can tell me if I make a good enough case or not that work for you. I love it. Let's All do right, it. perfect. Well, then, with that in mind, let's start with a real award, and it's an award that doesn't, you know, ex- so- it sort of doesn't exist in the on the ATP Tour in the fact that the Player of the Year goes to the year-end world number one, and given the ranking system, the protections for some of these players, you know, especially in a year like 2020 when a pandemic has influenced the season, uh, Novak Djokovic was year-end number one, and it was going to take a monumental, gargantuan effort from any player to catch him. It's going to take that same sort of effort to surpass him in 2021, so he was unequivocal the player of the year. That was something all of us could have seen coming. Uh, but of course, you know, I wanted to give a real player of the year award. I wanted to weigh the season, both the ATP sanctioned events we saw, but then of course there was a ton of pandemic tennis that I think should factor into the formal player of the year award here on the Great Shot podcast. So I am going to give you my number one, or I'll give you my list of players. I want to hear you make the case for your guy first. I have on my nominees for player of the year, I think four guys stood out above everyone else. You tell me if you think it's too many, too few, or just right. I have Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Dominic Thiem, and Andre Rublev as my four finalists for this award. Let's start there. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Those four guys are cut above everyone else? No brainer. Those are the four nominees. No, No question about it. Yeah, okay. Well, then, I'm glad we can start there. We can get right to my number one recipient. Let's start at the top. My player of the year, and I think, am I am I getting lost? And I hate the term narrative, right? Because when it's a narrative award, does that mean, did they actually do it on the merits, or are you just trying to root for the story? I don't think that's the case in this instance, because my player of the year, and we talked about this a little bit on your show, it's Dominic Team, who by traditional metrics, didn't blow the tour out of the water. You know, 25-9, and nine, a 74% win percentage. That's not crazy. That's really, really, really good. But that's not elite of the elite. However, we talked about this when I came on your show. You throw in, I think it was a tentative 27-2 and two he went in exhibition matches, UTS events, etc., etc. That gets him to 52-11 and 11 on this season. That puts his win percentage over 800. And when we 
we have on this podcast before gone back in time and talked about the elite seasons in tennis history, they all start with a minimum of an 80% win percentage in the matches you are playing. And Dominic Team met that mark during this season. Of course, he made the biggest jump any player on tour can make. He went from contending for a Grand Slam title to becoming a Grand Slam champion. He also, at the start of this season, was really, really good. He made the final of that Australian Open. He beat Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals. Really good win over Zverev in the semifinals. One of my favorite matches of uh, this 2020 season. And actually, I don't was it team who beat Nadal in the quarterfinals? That might not be right. I, I may have screwed that one up. No, uh, was it was Zverev, team? Zverev did play team. Yeah, but in the quarterfinals of that Australian Open, was it team who beat? I think it was Nadal. Did beat Nadal? Yeah, he he or yeah, but he did beat Nadal. So he did beat Nadal, and you know, to that point, uh, from there, he only played the one event in Rio. It was a bad loss for him in the Rio quarterfinal. Whatever, he did not start out well at the Western Southern. That doesn't matter because from there, he won. What was it? I think eleven matches in a row up to the quarterfinals of the French Open. Really should have won that match against Diego Schwartzman. Had he had slightly fresher legs, you might think he comes out of that one. It's not unrealistic to say that's a match he lost in five sets. There's a world where he wins that match, advances to the semifinals. Not saying he beats Rafa in that semifinal, but at least advances there. And then, of course, he ended the season so strongly, making the finals of uh, the year-end championships, beating Rafa, beating Djokovic in their head-to-head matchups. And yeah, it's indoor hardcourt, but he beat the best players. He had the single biggest accomplishment of the 2020 season, which was winning that 2020 U.S. Open. He's my player of the year. So emotionally, I was with you. When when the year ended, <laughs> before I thought about this, this isn't a dig, of course, but before I before I <laughs> tried to remove my, I guess, my gut reaction from who's the player of the year because I landed on Dominic Team because it feels like he's the player who had compared to his expectations the most successful year among the elites really does feel like that and I'll also throw in that if he beats Verev in the ATP finals in that final match it would have become a really tough call but um or excuse me not Zverev uh team yep Beats Medvedev. Beats Medvedev in that final. Oh, right, right. If he beats Medvedev in that tour final, it would have become a very, very tough call. But I could not, when I really stepped back, it's Novak Djokovic. He's my player of the year. Uh, He had the most big titles, winning two out of the three Masters, winning one slam, which is the same number that Nadal and team came away with. He was 26-0 before the U.S. Open default. Uh, and he has that head-to-head over Dominic Team in that Australian Open final. Again, if Team won the ATP finals, there would have been an argument to be made for Dominic taking two of the four biggest titles that were on the line with Wimbledon's cancellation. But after the loss to Medvedev, I just feel like it makes Novak the clear choice based on results. But I get it because it feels like Novak could have accomplished more than he did. Yeah, so it's a two-man race, right? It really comes down to Djokovic and uh, Dominic Team. They've separated themselves from the others. And 
you know, we're going to get to Andre Rublev in a second, so I'm not going to make the case for him now, but he was the guy who tied Novak Djokovic, right, for the most wins on tour with 41. He had, was it five ATP titles this season? Something like that. We'll get to those numbers in a second. Andre Rublev was just probably week in, week out, the best player in tennis in 2020. The way he started the season, winning his first 10 matches, the way, uh, all right, maybe it was his first 11 matches before losing to Zverev in the fourth round. He was he was exceptional, but he didn't win a great Grand Slam. He didn't win a Masters event. We saw him at the year-end finals. He wasn't good enough against the very, very best players to win the award. For Rafa Nadal, outside of the French Open, where he was unequivocally the best player for two weeks on clay, and it's just like, what are we doing? Why even play the event at this point? Um, <laughs> there just wasn't enough. The body of work wasn't big enough. For him, 27-7, and 7, 79.4% win percentage. That's really good. It's not elite. Mm-hmm. You know, Novak Djokovic, 89 and 1, that's fine. Uh, our 89.1 win percentage, that's that's ridiculous. That is another elite season. He was 26 and 0, but when you think about the wins he scrapped out during the start of this season, you know, he's down two sets to one in that Australian Open final against Dominic Team. He's down match point in those Dubai semifinals. I think a couple of match points in that second set breaker against Gael Monfils and you know, I, well, you know, the, it felt like the damn just kind of broke on the perfect season at the U.S. Open, and it was this manifestation, obviously, this unimaginable moment that happens. He hits a line judge in the throat, and it'll never happen again probably in tennis history. Um, But I just think when you think about the 2020 season, who was the the best, most impactful, you know, however you want to define best, which is the best results, the most Mm -hmm. impactful, the most significant. It's all of those three terms who had the best results, all of them put together. I am going to give Dominic Team the benefit of the exhibition season, the 27-2, and two, and that's not in the formal ATP awards. And if people want to hold that against me, that's fine because Novak Djokovic was better in ATP events. But Dominic Team once again in 2020, played everything. And this was a season where, and there was no grass portion of the year, but he also won everything. Like there's only that Rio result is the really big, and I suppose Western Southern lost to Krajinovic. Those are the only two blemishes. Right. Uh, to me, the exhibition, uh, the exhibition season, if I'm being kind, uh, it's a 250. And I just don't think the player of the year, uh, I normally, uh, I'm not quite looking at that. On the Novak point, uh, I, think, I think you're right. He left meat on the bone. Whereas it feels like Dominic Team, especially considering the expectations going into the French, that he might be tired. Uh he he lost in the quarters to to Schwartzman, and that was actually a step backwards at the French. But you were kind of you saw that coming. And for team, it was okay. You've made the Australian Open finals. People thought that at, at a certain point that you weren't going to be a contender on hard courts, right? And you've proven everyone wrong there, and it manifests itself at first in a, in an Aussie final. Eventually in the U.S. Open final, you get it done with all of the pressure being the favorite in a tournament without the big three, and you capitalize on that. Plus, you've clearly made these unbelievable improvements in your game. If you're, again, expectation versus result, nobody was as good as Dominic Team. But if you strip away results only, it's Novak. Yeah, it, again, it's it's a good case for both of the guys. I hear you on the Novak Djokovic argument. 
I just think when you, again, body of work, the fact that Dominic Team managed in a, in a year of a pandemic to be the week-in, week-out best player in tennis, to play the amount of tennis he did and to have the level of success he did, uh, the spotlight he put on the sport by playing those matches, you know, it's not, with all due respect, I love the UTR events that came across the country that doesn't have the global appeal of watching Dominic Team play a match, and he played so many of them and what that meant to the sport, and you know, Novak Djokovic meant a lot to the sport this season as well. Are you talking me out of my argument? No. I'm going to stick with Dominic Team. He is my award recipient. Novak Djokovic may have been better, but again, they're one and one on the season, and both of their matches were toss-ups, right? Like the indoor hardcourt match where you favor Djokovic, Team beats him. You know, outdoor hardcourts in Australia, uh, team almost beats him. And so even on an individual level, I think this was the first season and why I want to give Dominic Team this award is because this was the first year he jumped to the threshold of, hey, I am one of the best players of the world. And is it Djokovic? Is it Nadal? Or is it Dominic Team? I think that's a legitimate question. I agree. And we both agree that the trajectory that Dominic Team is on is something worth watching in the in the most I, I we can't emphasize it enough if he keeps getting better like he did in 2020 he's gonna be there's gonna be no one better than him very very soon yeah I agree with you quickly I want to do some Rafa numbers just because we're not going to talk about him much for the rest of this so uh, and we talked about him a bunch on your show as well so if you want to hear more about that go check that out but Rafa this season 27 and 7 just some numbers for him lowest first serve in percentage for him since I believe it was the 2000 what 6 season 2005 season something crazy like that uh, but of course in terms of first serve win percentage he was at the highest number of his career at 76% clearly he has entered a stage where he knows he needs to be more aggressive with that shot. Now, it is worth noting, and this is a small thing, but that 79.4 win percentage, his lowest number since the 2016 season, he won 77% of his uh, sets. That's also the lowest number since the 2016 season. It's not that he's vulnerable on hard courts. I just think the gap between him and the other next geners has now narrowed. And so I, I think it's it's really, really good tennis. Now, I also think he established this year on the clay and he won his 20th Grand Slam. If you're an odds maker, he may have vaulted himself into the odds on favor to end up of these three with the most men's Grand Slams. Because the idea of, you know, if Djokovic has to win five more to surpass Rafa, and let's say he wins one more French Open at a minimum, like, that is a that is a tall task. Yeah, a- absolutely. Now, if you if you think about, again, you go back to 2012, and, and Nadal is, has a chance to win that match. It's just, when you go through history, there's all of these moments where it's, Oh well, what would we be saying if if that went the other way? Um, and this was this was one of them, uh, of course. And you look at for, I think for Novak, and this is part of why emotionally he he it feels like he didn't have the best season is because that U.S. Open title should have been by Novak standards kind of a layup without the presence of Nadal and Federer. Of course, it's not a layup; it's winning a slam, but. To lose it like he did, that's a tough pill to swallow. And then to go and you're in the final and some people think, oh, the conditions are in your favor at the French because the roof is cold and it's and it's cold. <laughs> and then you get smoked. It was a turning point in, in the slam race in Nadal's favor. Yeah, and 
again, just on an aesthetic level, and there are metrics to prove this as well, you can just see the adjustments in watching him play. You can watch him when he hits the big forehand and he has his opponent yanked all the way cross court and he goes down the line to change direction. He follows that ball in now on a hard court. He moves forward, Mm -hmm. and we'll get to the people don't talk about award in a little bit, but, you know, I think after this season, hopefully we'll be able to put to bed the people don't talk about how good of a volley Rafael Nadal is because we've spent a season, you know, probably the past four seasons talking about it. And it's just he has made noticeable improvements to sustain his prime. And is he the athlete he was in 2011? No, of course not. But is he the tennis player he was in 2011? He might honestly be more well-rounded. He might honestly be better. And that's crazy to say about a guy who turns, I think, 35 in 2021. So that is just, again, another amazing season in the books for Rafa. Yeah. And it's crazy that we can have the debate, which we had, and I don't know where you landed on this, but after that final would 2020 Rafa Nadal at the French beat 2008 Rafa Nadal at the French? And it was an actual good debate. I know. Right? It's a serious debate. It, it's a very good argument, especially with the way the conditions are. Yeah. By the way, I, I think I would attribute his win percentage, which you mentioned was a little bit lower than previous years, to the fact that he just didn't play enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a disadvantage. When you're not matched off, when when you're not in rhythm, when you're taking the time off that Nadal took on really two occasions, if you look at the calendar, that's that's not good. So that's maybe what kind of uh, forced his efficiency down a bit. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would say... No, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think you nailed it. I, I've done this impression before on the podcast, but we've all seen the video. 2012 didn't lose. 2013 didn't lose. He's talking about these clay court seasons back-to-back. They're like, what has your record on clay been since 2005? And he legitimately has five different occasions where he goes, okay, 2007 didn't lose. 2008, Soderling. <laughs> 2009, I uh, let me think. I think twice. Two. And it's just like, it's unbelievable. He can name the losses because there are that few us, uh, you know, that few uh, losses on his resume and yeah there wasn't the the Hamburg the Barcelona's the the Madrid's for him to rack up victories I agree with you I think that's a very good point you got to look past the numbers on the stats but again that's my award ballot for uh, my player of the year I have team one Djokovic two Nadal three Rublev four I do want to give an honorable mention to Medvedev Zverev and I guess Tsitsipas, because I do think there were flashes for all three of them when you thought, oh man, is this guy the best player on the world this in the world this season? And I'm not saying the answer was yes for them. That's just why they're honorable mentions, but they deserve to be mentions because they showed flashes of being that good. And I think that's a perfect segue for us to get to our next category, which is the most improved player of the year. And I think there are a lot of guys who qualify for this category, but this is where we can do our long uh, spiel. I guess we can go five minutes each because we've both talked and all of us have talked about how good Andre Rublev was this season. He was one of the nominees alongside of Ugo Umber, Yannick Sinner, and I believe Diego Schwartzman for the actual award. I have my ballot go Rublev 1, Umber 2. I actually have Dominic T. Team three, Carlos Alcaraz four, and Yannick Sinner five. Do you think that's a fair ballot? I'm very confused about the Sinner placement. Uh, I have the same guy at number one. Uh, I love the Hugo Umber shout out because what am I going to say? Not enough people talk about it. 
but uh, <laughs> but why is Sinner so low? So here's my argument I've made for Yannick Sinner. Unequivocally, he was one of the most improved players in the 2020 season. Why it doesn't qualify at the top of my ballot is A, degree of improvement, and B, degree of expectedness. The only difference for Yannick Sinner, and I said this to you on your show as well, and this is the burden of doing 25 podcasts a day is you often end up repeating yourself, but <laughs> the only difference between Yannick Sinner in 2019 and Yannick Sinner in 2020 is that Yannick Sinner was 18 years old in 2019. He's now 19 years old in 2020, and what does that mean? It's X more matches under his belt. It's X more repetitions in the gym, X more repetitions on court, and just the growth curve for Yannick Sinner, no one has ever doubted it. Uh, you know, He has entered the conversation with We'll talk about him at length. Well, I guess we can talk about him now, you know, for him to win his first ATP title at age 19. He joins a special group of players by doing that. For him to enter the ATP top 40 to make that jump to where now he's never going to have to worry about playing qualifying or receiving a wild card in any event he plays uh, throughout probably the rest of his career, barring injuries. That's a huge jump. The French quarterfinal as well. French Open quarterfinals. That's another huge jump. But the guys above him on my award ballot either made more significant jumps or, again, it was an unexpected jump to the most improved, which I think matters when you're talking about this or the award. Who are the guys who jumped out where you're like, you know what? I didn't think he was going to be that good this season, and he was. He improved to that degree. And so, again, the people I have above Yannick Sinner, number four, Carlos Alcaraz, who we'll talk about when we get to Newcomer of the Year. I mean, for a 17-year-old, we'll talk about some of the categories of players he joins. But Richard Gasquet is the best under-18-year-old tennis player of the 21st century, uh, and then it's probably Rafa, and then it's probably Del Potro, and then maybe Djokovic, and maybe FAA, by, by the way, belongs in that category as well by accomplishment. And Carlos Alcaraz did things on the Challenger Tour this year by winning, I think it was three titles that matched all of their accomplishments. And he did it as a 17-year-old. And that sort of jump, that sort of improvement, I mean, that's – you go from, oh, yeah, this guy's a promising junior to, okay, this guy could be one of the next great champions on the ATP Tour. You don't see – you know, only Bernard Tomic had that degree of success and kind of ended up as a flop, I suppose. But even he had times in the top 20, and he didn't, you know, his lack of success as a tennis player had nothing to do with his talents on the court. Uh, anyways, Carlos Alcaraz for me, number four for those reasons. Number three for Dominic Team. I said it in the player of the year. The hardest jump you can make is from Grand Slam contender to Grand Slam champion. He made that jump. That deserves a spot on the ballot. Ugo Umbera is number two for me, and in the People Don't Talk About Award, I have projections for 2021. I will bet you a healthy sum of McDonald's, which is probably the meal that we bet on at this point in our careers, uh, that <laughs> at the 2021 Australian Open, Patrick McEnroe will be like, you know, people didn't talk enough about how good Ugo Umber was down the home stretch of 2020. He won two titles. He was so good in Antwerp, and it's just like he was that good. He was outstanding, and I'm trying to talk about it as much now as possible because for him to make the jump in, you know, he won a bunch of challengers at the end of 2019. He had put himself in a position to be in the top 100, but to win multiple ATP titles, to do it on indoor and outdoor hard courts, to beat the players that he did in the fashion that he did, three set dramas along the way, to do it back-to-back -back weeks— he was outstanding. He was absolutely outstanding, and he's done it on a couple of surfaces now, too. Uh, you know, he had the run at Wimbledon a few years back. Now he's done it on the hard courts. 
I, I just think he was obviously outstanding. Um, and then we can get to number one in a second. But what do you think about the cases for two, three, and four? I like him. I, I like him a lot. I think I think that was well said. I mean, Umber really impressed me with all all season long with his heart. Um, I love how early he takes his forehand and the pinpoint accuracy that he has on that side. It's it's a combination that is really perfect for dominant midcourt games and serve plus one tennis that that Umber will most certainly play. The backhand is flat, but he doesn't miss on it a lot, doesn't try to do too much with it, uh, hits it down the line to the righty backhand really well, which is very important for any lefty. Um, so I, I'm a huge fan of Umber. I'm so excited to watch Alcaraz. And this is this is a list. This is the kind of list that just makes me excited and want 2021 to start. <laughs> now, Ugo Umber goes wins. Uh, you know, two and two in challenger matches in 2017, 34 and 13 in challenger matches in 2018, 21 and five in 2019 on the ATP tour. He goes two and four in 2018, 15 and 20 in 2019. Now 19 and 13 this season. Again, it's j- jump, 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 growth, growth, growth. The first serve in uh, first serve make percentage goes up. The first serve win percentage has stayed above 72 percent. He's got the goods to have have an elite uh, elite is too strong of a word but to have just uh, uh such a high floor to be a minimum top 40 player because he can win free points for himself he's the definition of a modern athlete i know he's listed at 6-2 but i feel like he plays like he's 6-3 6-4 i feel like he's got a little hunchback of notre dame to him where he's got a little slouch but he's actually got more length than he lets on I'm a huge fan of his. I I mean, yeah, I I think he has to be in this discussion. But then number one, I mean, the biggest jump, and it's not particularly close, goes to Andre Rublev, who, you know, goes from, I believe he was 37 and 18 last season, which was really good. And he was so good down the home stretch at Western Southern. He beats Roger Federer, really good performance for him at the U.S. Open as well before losing to Berrettini. He follows it up all season long, 41 and 10, an 80% win percentage. I mean, in terms of his first serve win percentage, he was at a career high, 79.6%, 53.8 on second serves. That's a career high. His first serve in percentage still below 60%. So there are still, you know, little, I suppose, baskets of fruit for him to grab. Just easy little things, easy little things. Just pick that up uh, and you can clean up a little bit. And it's just... The development he was he had as a mover, the development he had at the ATP 500 level on clay, it was just everything for Andre Rublev this season was a step forward. He has to win the award as the most improved player. Yeah, how about the focus also? Because he starts the season like a rocket shot out of a cannon and wins the first two tournaments that he enters in. And then we have what what on the on the surface would look like a horrible tragedy for Andrei Rublev, just like it was for the entire world. But the coronavirus pandemic came at a terrible time for Rublev. And then he just picked up where he left off, which just shows me an unbelievable level of focus and maturity and and belief. The consistency on a week-in, week-out basis is something that not a lot of players can pull off. And Rublev did it with five finals, from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, and it was an exhausting season for everyone, and Rublev was unfazed. Yeah. By the way, the metaphor I was looking for, it's the low-hanging fruit. That's what it is. Mm. The low-hanging fruit for him to pick off. And in terms of Andre Rublev moving forward, 
has he tapped out? Was this as good as it going to get for him? 41 and 10, everything sort of breaks his way. Or do you see low hanging fruit for him to continue to improve, to elevate himself to a, a conversation where he is competing and ultimately winning Grand Slam titles? Oh, I see so many areas where, where he can get better and it won't be, shouldn't be too difficult for him. The second serve, sometimes I feel like he's playing defense off of his first it hangs. shot. It hangs. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a snack. It's a snack for a lot of players, okay? <laughs> and he needs to – and there's no reason why that can't improve because he, he's got a really good flat serve. He's got a good first serve. There's nothing technically that I see awry with with the second. He just somehow needs to get more bite on it, and he needs to place it in the right spot so he can find backhands instead of forehands. And uh, we've all, we also talked about this on, on my channel about the transition game because he can hit bazooka forehands. He might hit two. He might hit three. And as we've seen so often, that wins the point against 95% of players on tour. But now you're playing Novak Djokovic and the ball's coming back on your own baseline. Well, how are you going to break the defenses of a Daniil Medvedev who's he, who he's had tons of trouble beating or a Novak Djokovic, for example. You need the transition game. You need to be able to hit an approach shot and finish at the net. Yeah, and to your point uh, about that transition game, 2017-2018, Andre Rublev, before he was injured, very bad volleyer. Like, uh, we're talking Taylor Fritz level of, oh, can we please work on this? Because once you can do this, a lot of things are going to open up. He has significantly improved. He's not good yet, but he's confident now. And he's much more mm-hmm. confident because he is confident. And so much of moving forward to the net is being confident, trusting yourself to cover the space. And that if the ball is hit to you and you anticipate correctly, you can execute the volley. He's gotten a lot better at doing just that, at executing the volley. Yeah, and he's so clearly a workhorse. It's so obvious by how yeah. quickly he he uh, gets better. And also, he's not like a Daniil Medvedev. The The story with Medvedev is well documented. He just didn't really take his career seriously enough until he was 21, 22 years old. And then I think he got married and he kind of snapped into it and started being more professional <laughs> and just working a little bit harder, right? Andre Rublev wasn't that guy. He was always hyper-determined, hyper-focused, and what happened? He hurt his back, and it set him back probably at least a year. So he was always kind of charging up the ranks. Just an unfortunate injury happened that completely derailed his career, and he just came charging back. You know, he, he always had it. He's most improved player, not because you know, he suddenly figured out what to do. He's most improved player because he got injured and people forgot about him and he's just become the player that he was always destined to be. Yeah, I I think that's a... That's an accurate assessment, and again, the key for him, stay healthy, because we saw what that health did for him in 2020. Again, his fitness was such a big, it was such a big part of it. You know, it was such a big part of his success, his ability to set up that forehand, so important to his game, unequivocally one of the most improved players. And I promise, folks, we're starting with the most important categories. We're not going to spend this long on all of them. Yeah. I want to have one here 
that is less stats dependent. This is a, a superficial category, but it's one I think tennis fans uh, across the ATP spectrum uh, can it, that will resonate with them. And that's the heir apparent award. I call it the Grigor Dimitrov heir apparent award because he was probably the first guy when he was coming onto the scene who ever you know the baby fed comparisons. He had all of this junior success. It just felt like he was going to be the guy that breaks through of the ranks of the Djokovic, Murray, Federer, Nadal's. Obviously, we know that never happened. And we've been searching for an heir apparent ever since. Now, I do think probably since 2016, 2017, Alex Zverev has held on to this mantle. I think there have been challenges to his name. And I think there are five guys who belong in this Grigor Dimitrov heir apparent discussion right now. I think Zverev still belongs in there. Of course, he has dropped off for reasons of not to do with his on-court appearance but I are not to do with his on-court performance but on the court certainly he belongs in this conversation still I think Medvedev and Tsitsipas have elevated themselves to the category I don't know if we consider Dominic Team an heir apparent or not. I don't because I think he's just kind of here. And it's just like, look, this is going to be a guy who's going to compete for slams. Whether he rips off five plus, I don't know. But he certainly has one under his belt. So I don't have him in here. I have Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and then Sinner and FAA in this category. Who would you name right now as the current Grigor Dimitrov heir apparent? Hmm. Um... This is this is the question, isn't it? This and is by the, the way, question. I'm I'm very glad that you didn't put Dominic Team in this because it, it just would have been too easy because he is a, <laughs> a step above. He well, he's a couple years older and he's exactly. a couple of levels, so it makes sense. Man, uh, I will go with Daniil Medvedev at the moment. Wow. He was not the favorite I was anticipating you to go with. I will be honest. I anticipated you might be on the Sinner bandwagon because I do think if you ask – if you took a poll of tennis Twitter, and of course tennis Twitter is more locked in than your casual tennis fan, he may be – he would be the guy – if you want to think you're smarter than everyone else yeah. that you end up taking, right? He's the analytics darling. He's accomplished all these things before 20 years old. Okay, well, let's parse this a little bit. Okay. Is it? Uh, are we thinking? Are, are we talking right now? Who would we think would retire with the most major titles? That's one way to look at it. Look, I, these categories are intentionally vague, Gil. I want you right, to be as confused right. as I am. But okay, okay. No. Who is yeah? I, even beyond who ends up with the most Grand Slam titles, who is the guy right now that people look to and say that's the future world number one? That's the guy I want to see what his best version looks like more than anyone else because I think that upside can be higher than anyone else's, and I suppose that ultimately does mean yes, who ends up with the most Grand Slams? But to me, I view it as whose peak is going to be the highest, perhaps as well. Okay. The more long-term we approach this award, the more I'm leaning Yannick Sinner. Yeah. He's special. He, they, he has that it. And Daniil Medvedev, we, we love to call him a unicorn, and he's also special. But he has, as much as he has clear strengths that are unbelievable, he also has weaknesses to kind of offset some of those. And for, for Yannick Sinner, you kind of look at him— and you put a microscope on him and you think, okay, like, where are you bad? How are you, <laughs> you know, how, how are you not going to take over the world one day? So 
yeah, the way Yannick Sinner strikes the ball off both wings, I, I can't argue with that. So I, I would say Daniil Medvedev is, is closer, and the, the more immediate reaction was to go with Medvedev, who I, I edge over Zverev and Tsitsipas if we're looking at 2021, for example. But long term, it is Sinner for me. So, again, the five guys I have in this category, and quickly, by the way, I didn't mention this, but my honorable mentions in Most Improved, I'm just going to rip through them really fast. You can leave it here, Westoff. Schwartzman, Carreno Busta were on the list, but for me, it's not that they improved their games as much as their results improved. And yes, that deserves recognition when looking back at the 2020 season, but I don't think they got demonstrably better as tennis players. Things just kind of opened up for them correctly. Some other guys, I think, really did make big jumps, by the way, in 2020, and I promise I will loop this back to the Air Apparent Award. Uh, Denis Shapovalov absolutely made a big jump in 2020. Mm-hmm. Quarterfinals at the U.S. Open was a little bit more consistent week in, week out, particularly at the beginning of the year. ATP Cup, he looked so good. Uh, I think he took a jump forward. I think Casper Ruud took a huge jump forward this year that probably went as quiet as anyone else's. He belongs on this list. Dan Evans belongs on this list. Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, for me, belongs on this list. I would throw in Brandon Nakashima, Tommy Paul, and Lorenzo Sinego as some other guys to me that were notably most improved, uh, a kind of nexus of that. But another guy who might belong in that most improved category, it will make people upset that I say this, but the guy, too, to me, I don't know what he did to lose the heir apparent award. I, I just, you know, outside of uh, Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, the next guy has always been Felix Oshir Aliassim. And who's the youngest player ever to qualify for an ATP Challenger draw? It's FAA. Who's the youngest ever player to win a match in an ATP Challenger draw? It's FAA. Who's the youngest player ever, or second youngest player ever, excuse me, to win multiple ATP Challenger titles? It's FAA, who did it by 17 years old. Who's a guy who has already made six ATP career finals before turning 21? It's FAA. And for comparison, uh, just quickly, I I wanted to, because I've had this FAA rant in me, and I think this is the best place to do it. I went back, and this is the most extreme examples, and the the worst thing you can do as a journalist, as someone who talks about tennis, whatever it is you want to call that I do, is to compare a young player to the big three, because to burden a young player with the expectations of a Djokovic, a Nadal, a Federer, you're just, you know, you're setting them up for failure, because no one's going to live up to those standards. Those are the three best men's tennis players of all time. But by the age of 20, by the you know, by the time they were turning 20 or had just turned 20, really their age 19 seasons, here's the comparisons for those guys. Novak Djokovic at that time, three ATP titles, uh, three ATP finals, excuse me, two titles to his name, but he ended the year at number 16. Roger Federer, zero titles. Two ATP finals only, he ended his season just inside the top 20. Uh, Who was the last one? Rafael Nadal's the exception because he was so good at such a young age. But Andy Murray, uh, another guy who I think had one ATP title in three finals, was just inside the ATP top 20. Is there any... 
all of those descriptions fit what FAA has done. And by the way, Novak Djokovic, his two wins in those ATP title matches, he beat Nicholas Masu, which like, yeah, that's congratulations, Novak. You beat Nicholas Masu. That's great. Uh, and I believe his other win was Jurgen Meltzer. And it's like, Mazel tov, my friend. You won two ATP <laughs> titles before the top, you know, before. But no one talks about, oh, do you remember that time he beat Meltzer? How good Meltzer was and for Djokovic to beat him? Like, no. No one says that about those wins. So, like, I think FAA, no, he hasn't made a Grand Slam quarterfinal, but I am just as excited for him as I am Yannick Sinner. I do still think, though, the next-gen guys hold the belt because I do think Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev have now really confirmed that they're all going to win Grand Slam titles. Yeah, I would agree with that. But to go back to FAA, I'm just a little bit disappointed in the in the rate of growth very recently, and that's kind of what what holds me back. Um, I I'm just seeing the same mistakes happening for now an extended period of time, and I just wish that he was getting better faster now. You might have said the same exact thing about a Novak Djokovic, and I am fully on board with FAA's tools and how good his forehand is and how athletic he is, the way he moves and his his first serve and the potential that that shot has. But I'm do you do you share that? I just want to ask first. Do you share kind of the the ambivalence about the the shot selection and the unforced errors and the double faulting and the backhand to a certain extent? Truthfully, no. Like, not really. For me, the biggest question is what's plan B for him. And I think it's a little, I think it's a, rigid, a little mechanical, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think he has mm-hmm. the fluidity. It's not the natural tennis player of a Daniil Medvedev or even an Alex Zverev who can play the angles, go down the line, do all of these different things. FAA, it's, it's a little bit more line drive. It's a little bit more linear power he's going to hit through you. But... Part of this is the in-person test. I've said this before. Go listen to FAA hit a person in, a forehand in person. It sounds like a rocket ship is taking off. It's just different than even a Del Potro or a Federer or a Djokovic or a team or any of them. And I just think you look at the small improvements he's made. Again, his his first serve win percentage has continued to increase. His second serve win percentage has held steady at 50%. But I just think there are little, again, little uh, hanging fruit for him to pick, as you mentioned, be a little bit more disciplined on the backhand side. You know, don't feel the need to go so big down the line immediately. But when I look at his athleticism, when I look at his skill set, his comfort moving forward, I still feel you know, he has elite tools on his hands. For and sure. he's got the physical profile to really succeed with those tools. For sure. And uh, I share the same feelings about kind of the mechanical point structuring. Um, I find that his forehand, it's a shot that I'm completely in love with. I think when it's on, when it's right, he is so overwhelming because he he takes it so early and he hits it so big. Uh, But he misses too much on it because his targets are so small. And it's like you're, you're such a great athlete. You move so well. You don't have to miss. You don't have to go for so much. I mean, there is a stark contrast. If you look at even Federer, uh, who's the most aggressive of the big three, big four, okay? He's not going as much. Uh, he's not going for as much as Felix Ojeda-Aliassime is going for on his forehand. Then the backhand, uh, it's 80% cross court, which is a bit of a red flag for me. It, I just find that 
Um, it's not as precise as I'd like. And of course, while I'm tearing him apart, um, or not tearing him apart, or while I'm pointing out his weaknesses is a much better way to put it, a little bit more accurate. Mm-hmm. I also acknowledge that when he's making first serves and hitting his forehands, you're just not going to break him. And and his return's quite good as well because his strokes are too, are uh, are so compact. That's the big thing for me. He has elite skills. I mean, so does Yannick Sinner, by the way. So do all of these guys. That's why they're the Greek or Dimitrov heir apparent. I just... Again, I have FAA fifth on this list. Like, I don't think he's the heir apparent. I do think long-term... I mean, Medvedev could win a Grand Slam in 2021, and people would still be like, yeah, but just wait till Sinner and Tsitsipas and Zverev start winning slams. I think if Tsitsipas won a slam, he could capture the mantle of, okay, we think of him as the unanimous number one player in the world. I mean, the -the off-the-court stuff plays such a factor, because here's the thing. If Alex Zverev wins the 2021 Australian Open, would would we start having the conversation of if—if people—after he wins, if people started having the conversation of he's the best player in the world, would it be outrageous? You said Zverev? Sorry, the internet. Yeah, Yeah, if it's Zverev. I I don't—it depends how he wins it. It it really does, right? Is the second serve— solid yet uh is the forehand consistent is the mental consistent those would be my my questions oh and and is he finding the right balance between offense and defense because that's been a key for him and and when he's stepping into the court and he's always you know he's a great defender and he does not talk about a guy who doesn't miss and this is the most underrated part of his game is he doesn't really miss uh but when he's punishing short balls and he's actually moving inside the court and crushing his forehand, that's when he's at his very, very best. But when will he get to a point where he's always going to be doing that and he's not going to have the kind of matches that he had against Sinner at the French where he was just sitting back? Yeah. Look, again, to me, this heir apparent, I I think that's another factor. If one of these players won a Grand Slam, would we be ready to title them the best player in the world? I don't think the answer is yes for FAA. I would just be like, oh my no. God, wait, what happened? I I don't think the answer would be yes for Tsitsipas. I don't think that would be the mm-hmm. case yet. I I think him and Medvedev are really close. I do think do they'd you think be really it's, close. You think it's more mental or physical for Tsitsipas? Because I feel like his game is his game is further ahead than his head. And that's why if he won a slam, I would be like, ooh, watch out. If if he's going to have confidence and swagger now, watch yeah, out. He has confidence and swagger. The problem is he doesn't have the confidence in himself when things go awry. When What's the plan B? He hasn't figured out plan B yet. And right. I think that's as much a game development as it is a mental development. So again, I have Medvedev and Tsitsipas just a category lower. But I legitimately think if Yannick Sinner or Alex Virov won the 2021 Australian Open, the conversation wouldn't be, okay, these guys had a ridiculous run. The conversation would be, holy crap. Are we seeing the best player in tennis now asserting himself as that best player? And I know that has some zero bias in it, uh, but I, I just think those are the two guys who qualify for this award. I lean Zverev, but I, I understand why Sinner could win this award as well. I would go with, with Sinner because, again, I go back to rate of improvement, and that's something that has— uh, yeah, I do wish that FAA has shown more of it, and quite frankly, Zverev as well. You know, as he was going through his stretch from 2017 when he was already winning Masters uh, to now, 
Uh, I wish that he continued to get better in those in-between years when maybe he was just kind of treading water. Treading water in a great spot, but still treading water. And Sinner right now is a rocket ship. So if you're asking me what train, what bandwagon do I want to jump on, give me that one. Yeah, I agree. I think that's why he's the biggest riser. Uh, This was an excuse to talk about his rise. He has joined that conversation of the elite of the elite. When you're projecting guys who you say, okay, who for sure is going to win a Grand Slam, right? And this is the just miss in this category. I'm not ready to put Carlos Alcaraz in this group. I'm not ready to put a Musetti or a Nakashima in this group. I I don't think we've seen the consistency enough from Shapovalov through these first two and a half, three years of pro tour play to put him in that group. Guys like Demonauer, Church, Opelka, they fall short of this conversation. Hatchinov falls short of this conversation. I think those are the five for me. Those are the five guys that if any of those five won five-plus grand slams, I wouldn't be shocked. And so I think for me, that that's we do tier rankings uh, to label these guys. Those would be my tier one guys, the guys who I would be more surprised if they didn't win a Grand Slam than if they did win one. I do think Zinner and Svirov still at the top of that list. But that gets us to our Newcomer of the Year award, an award probably Yannick Sinner for many people won after his 2019 season. I think we've already touched on this guy enough, but we both agree the winner of this award pretty, again, unequivocally is Carlos Alcaraz. Carlos Alcaraz so good during this season. 20-4 and four on the Challenger circuit. He won three titles. You talk about where he ranks in ATP Challenger history. I just gave you all those stats. He is the fifth youngest player to win multiple Challenger titles behind Tomic, Nadal, FAA, and Gasquet. Uh, he's also, again, joined uh, so many different lists with his accomplishments this season. He's inside, I believe, I want to say the top uh, 200 now uh, with his his result. He's going to get into uh, so many different challenger events. He was uh, tied with Francisco Serendolo as the ATP challenger title leader. And again, all of it came at the end of the season. It was that sort of six-week stretch you see from so many of these young guys when they make the jump from the challenger circuit to get ready to the pro tour uh, that they have this sort of run. And Carlos Alcaraz, another on the list of players to do it and to do it at age 17. He's the newcomer of the year, right? Well, see, for me, I gave the award. I gave most improved to Rublev, so then okay. I gave newcomer to Sinner. But if if you go down a if you go down a level, right? Because we're going from tour level to challenger level with Alcaraz, then unequivocally, I mean, Carlos Alcaraz is just ripping through the the challenger tour. Um, so I, I've been I'm really excited for for him. He seems like a really really well rounded player. Uh, from everything I've seen, um, one of the things that I've that I look for after the big three era, after watching Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, and Federer, is is this a player who has the potential to be elite both offensively and defensively? And a lot of players haven't checked that both of those boxes and haven't really. It's like a basketball player. Can you score at all three levels? Can you score from beyond the three, mid-range, and at the rim? And I would say for tennis, it's like, well, can you trade? Are you consistent when when you're trading? Do you have offense when you come forward or when you're looking to finish points? But also, can you flip points around? Can you win points that you're not supposed to win? Can you scramble? And it, it just seems like Alcaraz has that very, very unique and clear ability to play tennis at all three levels. 
Yeah, I mean, again, a surface level the look through of his stats uh, this season. He was really good on serve. He made 65% of his first, or excuse me, he made 69% of his first serves in challenger matches, won 62% of those points, 53% of his second serve points. And again, you know, 42 and 18 in sets. That's a 70% win percentage. He was 83.3% on the challenger circuit. That's an elite season in terms of that level. I mean, I think he made something like, what was it, seven finals in 2020 between the ITF and Challenger level, and to do it at age 17, to jump up the ranks the way he did, I do think, and this is sort of biased, because for me, Yannick Sinner made that huge jump last season. This season was just a continuation of that improvement. Yannick Sinner is is not a newcomer to me in the way that Carlos Alcaraz was to the conversation. So that's why he is elevated to me to number one. But I don't hate the idea of naming Sinner the newcomer of the year because he also, again, really solidified himself in the ranks of the heir parents. Yeah, again, totally fair, right? It's uh, There's a newcomer on the tour, and then there's a newcomer on the, well, they're both the tour, um, but, you know, on the on the <laughs> challenger level. And, and Alcaraz, he's just kind of, He's a year behind Sinner, right? Because Sinner had that unbelievable, as you just, as you kind of said, um, had that unbelievable 2019 on the Challenger Tour, and then 2020 was his first year with the big boys, and it'll be the same thing for Alcaraz now. <laughs> Did you get the the feeling when he was playing Albert Ramos Vinolas in Rio? That felt big. That felt like the remember where you are, and I haven't had that feeling in a long time. Are you with me on that? Yeah. For me, it was the back-to-back Tiafo matches at the challenger okay. level. And I, I, I know what you're—I I don't disagree with—in terms of the, the larger stakes, yes, that felt like a big moment. But for me, to watch those two battles, and you could tell after Alcaraz got—or, excuse me, those were the Musetti battles. Musetti battled with Alcaraz. I, I'm thinking of the Pedro Martinez-Portero match. Excuse me, that happened right after the French Open. And for me, to see Martinez-Portero— make, what was it, the third round before he lost to Sebastian Corda, and he was playing some really, really outstanding tennis, and Alcaraz just dusted him, and it was just like, I just remember thinking, oh my god, like, this kid is the real deal, it wasn't these soft draws, it wasn't whatever, it's the fact that he did it week in, week out, and it was over the course of six consecutive weeks, he didn't burn out at any point, there wasn't like this three straight first round exits, it was just result after result after result, it did feel very special. It absolutely did feel special. I agree with you there. But I, I think he wins this award over Sinner in my mind. Some other guys I have in this category. Sinner's a good one. I have Rusevori, Musetti, Korda, Nakashima all in the conversation. You know, guys like Sabathville, Rodionov, Cressy, Rinderneck. They were all very, very good this year as well. But I think uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say if you want to go to DraftKings right now and lock in Carlos Alcaraz as the winner of this award, the formal winner, uh, that's a pretty safe bet uh, in your mind. So, Thus far, and again, we have talked a lot about the major awards. We have talked about the best players. Let's flip gears here. Let's do one of my favorite awards, the Suicide Squad Award for That Didn't Go Well in 2020. Of course, Suicide Squad, a reference to uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnookin's fine movie. Of course, when you can go from producing Suicide Squad, you're clearly qualified to run the Treasury Department. Uh, That didn't go well. Neither did the seasons for the following players. Marin Cilic, 
in my opinion. Nicolas Jerry, who obviously suspension due to performance-enhancing drugs. We don't really need to talk about that one. Milos Raonic at the 2020 U.S. Open and Karen Hatchinov. Pick one of the four. Let's break it down in depth. Which to you was the most intriguing in terms of that didn't go well and it mattered to you this season? Remind me the first one. Chilich, Jerry. Oh, Chilich. Again, yeah, Chilich, Jerry, okay. Raonic at the 2020 U.S. Open, or Hatchinov. It's between Jerry or Jerry or Raonic because Chilich, it, it was kind of a slow decline. I kind of saw it. I felt it coming, and then it happened. Mm-hmm. So I would say Raonic. I picked him to the semifinal. Let's do Raonic. I'm, yeah. I, I am so happy about this. Yeah, please yeah. go ahead. I thought that he was going to make a run, uh, and I was pretty convinced because as as difficult as it is to make the finals at the Western and Southern Open and then turn around the next week and to not lose any steam and, let's say, make a, a run to the second weekend of the U.S. Open, I don't want to diminish that that's physically and mentally difficult to go three weeks straight like that. With that being said... He was playing big man tennis straight out of 2016, crushing the forehand when he needed the topspin two-handed backhand, which isn't always there for him. He had it. Uh, He was going to the net and and using his length at the net, serving as as, as well as he can serve, which is obviously like a missile, like the missile that he is. And then he loses to Vashik Pospisil. He loses to his countrymen who... um, that might have been someone who should be in the most improved category, honorable mention, right? Because he mm-hmm. he he had a very good season. He's but I did more not comeback see that player. Coming. He's more comeback player of the year than You're most right. improved for me. Um, You're right. But but to your point, it just could there is there a bigger missed opportunity the way the U.S. Open broke forward than mm. Milos Raonic and that event? If he beats Vashik Pospisil, who does he play next? I, was it, Who did Pospisil end up losing to in the event? Was it Medvedev that Pospisil he, ended up losing to? I think so. Yes. I, I think yeah. that it would have been Raonic-Medvedev. And not to say that Raonic wins that match hands down, but given the conditions you thought how quick the U.S. Open courts were playing or at least how quick they played uh, in terms of at the Western and in terms of how quick they were playing at the Western and Southern. And by the way, it, it was D, it was Roberto Bautista Agut that Rayonish would have faced next, not that. Okay. Uh, that it would have been Bautista Agut, and then he probably would have played Demon Hour to get to the quarterfinals. Uh, and then at that point, yeah, things, you know, start to open up for him. Then I think it would have been Medvedev uh, down the mm-hmm. road and just – after the way the Western Southern Open went, he makes the final. He looks really good along the way, right? I don't think he dropped serve that entire time, something crazy like that, where up until the final, he's playing just all of these different 7-6 matches. He's playing so well and just – and he's winning all of these different – you know, again, he, he's winning the tiebreakers. He beats Tsitsipas. He beats, uh, you know, Philip Krajinovic in a testy battle. He's up on Novak Djokovic winning that first set 6-1, and you just think to yourself, all right, Novak Djokovic gets knocked out knocked out of the top half of the draw. Who's winning that U.S. Open? You probably would have circled Milos Raonic coming into the event, and he couldn't even make it past the second round. It's just, you know when he looks back, that 2016 Wimbledon final, he lost to Andy Murray. Andy Murray was the better player. 
This 2020 U.S. Open, with the way he was serving, the way he was covering the net, the confidence with which he was playing, I mean, to lose to Pospisil in four sets, to not even make the second week, that was a big moment. That, to me, was I, – I was so I agree with you because I was like, there's no way he doesn't at least make the quarterfinals, and he didn't, and I was shocked. And – Pospisil is, was not a player who, at that point in time, was really on my radar. Uh, he got on my radar very quickly, and he continued to play well throughout the U.S. Open. But, but yeah, one thing that I found interesting, none of the four players who made the semifinals of the Western and Southern Open, so let, let's see if we can get this here. It was RBA, Djokovic, Raonic. Um, who did Raonic beat in the and... semifinals? Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas. Okay. None of them made the second week of the U.S. Open. They all bailed out. That's crazy. That right? is crazy. Yeah, that that is remarkable to think about. And that is something, it goes without saying. You play as tough of a week at the Western and Southern Open as they did, and you go directly into the U.S. Open. That absolutely plays a factor. It's why, by the way, a guy like Dominic Team is my player of the year because even in a pandemic, he did it week in, week out. But... Yeah, I just I, – I do think you look back, that didn't go well. Milos Raonic is going to be kicking himself. He's like, how did I let Dominic Team win a Grand Slam before me? I was the Grigor Dimitrov heir apparent after Grigor Dimitrov, and it just it didn't happen for him. And now you really start to worry about his window. You know, Alex, now that I think back, I had – I'm pretty sure I, I had Raonic to the final. I think if, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, he's a very bad matchup for Dominic Team. I don't know that he would yeah. have defeated Medvedev in the quarterfinals. I think that Daniil is a, a very good returner when it comes to absorbing pace and taking bombs. But if he faced die, that's the last player that Dominic Team wanted to see in New York. So, yeah, that 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 stung, no doubt. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. But, again, yeah, I, I think for all of those players, they're going to be looking at 2021. For Milos Raonic, he's about as sure of a thing as any in a Grand Slam, particularly at the Australian Open. I think if you look back over the past five years, he's made like three or four quarterfinals, uh, has been as consistent as anyone in term, not named Novak Djokovic in terms of making that round. But, yeah, I, I think the 2020 U.S. Open was certainly an opening for Milos Raonic, and obviously second-round exit, a disappointment for him. Uh, let's move on to our next award, and we can do this next one quickly. It's the Ah, 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 Staying Alive. Staying alive. Award West off. Roll the clip for me, please. Um, all right. In this category, what I, it's to say the people, it's not quite the comeback player of the year award, but it's the people who perhaps had that needed season to reset the narrative, to get back on track and put themselves in a position to have the sort of success they're accustomed to in 2021. I have four nominees for the award. You tell me who you would pick as the winner. Jack Sock, Grigor Dimitrov, Stan Wawrinka, or this is a sneaky category who I don't think will win, but I still feel confident in Kei Nishikori. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, none of none of them really jump out to me. Personally, my, my comeback player of the year, it's funny that, that you said when I when I threw in Pospisil and you said, well, he's more like comeback. He he did win the Monday Match Analysis Award for a comeback player of the year. <laughs> um, Good. 
Interesting. You know, Vavrinka, I, I almost feel like this unfair expectation is placed on him. And I think every time I preview a major, everyone's like, what about Vavrinka? And I'm like, he hasn't, he hasn't, <laughs> he's not, he's not that guy. He's not 2014 Vavrinka. I am sorry. Um, that, that I want to hear yours. You know, Vashik's a good one. I he was in the formal newcomer or uh, most uh, best comeback player of the year. I think that's actually a really, in terms of him getting himself back in the top sixty, really establishing himself as a hard court player. Uh, that was a really good nominee. I really like the way Grigor Dimitrov is playing, and I think. Uh, so I have Jack Sock as the number one because when I thought of this category, okay. I really just wanted a way to say I was really impressed with Jack Sock's improvements in 2021. He seemed healthy, fit, and engaged on court mm-hmm. in a way he just hadn't been in a couple of seasons. But I probably lean Grigor because I thought Grigor looked really, really good down the home stretch of 2020. And I know he lost to Fucevic, I think, what was that, at the U.S. Open. I know he lost mm-hmm. to uh, Alex Diemenauer in a really fun match in Antwerp. And, you know, he's at, like, number 17 in the world, which isn't going to blow anyone away. But I just think he looked really fit this season. He's a guy who had COVID uh, during the five months off, and yet he still managed to come back and display this level and. I just think he's still got good tennis in him. I really do. I think he is one of those once-in-a-generation or once-in-a-generation yeah athletes that the sport sees, his flexibility, his length, his shot-making capabilities. Uh, I, I thought they were all on display, particularly tr- towards the home stretch, and I know he had his highest win percentage in a season since he won the year-end finals in 2017. I do think there's more le- – I, I do just think there's more left to the Grigor story. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think we saw it starting probably at the end of 2019. Uh, I felt he was playing really good tennis. And then, yeah, he's had some he's had some really good wins in 2020. Uh, he beat Stefano Tsitsipas in Vienna. He had a nice win at Roland Garros. Um, yeah, he kind of did have a, a cushy draw, but he went all the way to the round of 16 there. And Acapulco, he beat Vavrinka, making the semifinals there, and eventually lost to Nadal. I'm seeing a lot of good things out of out of Grigor, and I kind of thought that he would make a run into the top 10 this season. The ranking system and the the COVID-19 um, issue that, that he had testing positive, that, that was always going to present uh, or prevent rather that. Only Andre Rublev could make a huge jump in the rankings this year. It was really hard because players didn't have to defend points. Yeah, but Dimitrov's in his prime. It's so easy to forget, and it's because everyone expected so much out of him when he was 24, 25, 26, and people were like, what are you doing? Why aren't you winning the U.S. Open? So, yeah, now he's 29, 30-ish years old, if I'm not mistaken. And as we know, that's the new 26. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I completely agree with you there. Yeah, he's my award winner for the uh, 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 Staying Alive Award. But all right, rapid fire for these next couple of awards. I will go through these nominees quickly. You can tell me, uh, again, just who you think the winner of each category should be. Let's start with the People Don't Talk About Award. And let's just agree we can put these to rest. I guess you can just tell me yes or no. These qualify for the People Don't Talk About Award. Just a quick uh, reminder, you know, so often nowadays when people make a comment for the first time that they think is an original thought, they say, you know, people never talk about 
out and it's just like, no, you never talk about it. But pl- trust me, <laughs> plenty of us are talking about it. We, we agree. How good a volley or Rafael Nadal is. That's probably the king of the people don't talk about award. Affirmative. <laughs> I, I okay. do have one. If, Here's if you don't. One. Oh, yeah. Let's go through. I go might have no, a nominee. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. Nominees yeah. for, are still open for this category. Next one. Yeah. Man, people don't talk about how effective Novak Djokovic's drop shot is. People never ah, talk about Ah, that was that. it. I think yeah. that. Like, yep. That was. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's another king in this award, right? It's like, no, 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 no. We all talk about it. Like, trust me. In, in the circles I run in, we talk about it all the time. Right. Like, n- look, don't get me wrong. In 2020, Djokovic started drop shotting more. All year. All year he was drop shotting more. And it was like the French Open. Okay, we are literally in October. And people are like, you know what? I think Novak Djokovic is drop shotting more. It's like, yes, he has been. (laughs) This whole time. This whole time he's been drop shotting more. I know. Look, Rafa serves and volleys, Federer, Sabres, Novak drop shots. Those are the adjustments they all decided to make. Um but yeah, no, no, no. I agree. It's it's at near the top of the category. Uh, another one, how big a jump Andre Rublev made. No one talks about it. Um, another one that's not quite a people don't talk about, but the construction of the tweet just belongs in this category. Man, I think Yannick Sinner is going to be a problem. Look out for Yannick Sinner. People don't talk <laughs> about Yannick Sinner as a future Grand Slam champion. You know, look out for Brandon Nakashima. You guys might not have him projected as high as I do, but I watch Challenger tennis. And let me tell you, Brandon Nakashima is going to be really, really good. Or that Lorenzo Musetti, you might not have known about him, but look out for him. He's going to make a big jump. That construct, I'm done with it. It's I'm like, like tell me someone is good, but like, People make the tweet of look out for X just to say look out for X. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not an original thought. We all know this guy who's a former world junior number one in Lorenzo Musetti, number two in Brandon Nakashima, can be really, really good. Tell me, do you think they have top 10 upside? That's novel. If you think they're going to win a Grand Slam champion, that's bold. Don't tell me to look out for someone. I'm looking out for them. Yeah, I'm with you. There's a a race to send that tweet. But what people don't realize is is nobody – here's the thing. It's either so early. It's either you're so early that nobody cares. If you, f- <laughs> if you find me a 14-year-old, okay, who's like playing at the Orange Bowl and he didn't win but he's raw and you think he's going to develop and he's in the 14s, at that point, I don't care. Okay? I'm not going to remember this. It, I don't care if he wins 10 Wimbledons. I don't care about your tweet. Now, let's take the other side. Well, yeah, I know. It's too late. You you missed the boat. So (laughs) I agree. We should stop this completely. Okay, you're not going to be first. You're not going to discover someone for everyone. We're not going to be like, oh, you know what? Remember when John Smith tweeted about Musetti and said he was going to be good? Well, from that point on, I was watching him, and you know what? He was right or she was right. (laughs) No, No. that's never happened. I'm just saying uh, I think David Gertler, whom I love— very, very much. Cracked Rackets contributor. He might have typed that tweet about everyone. Just like every single person. <laughs> and it's like, David, I love them all too. But like, come on. Come on. 
We don't need to hear it. And by the way, this is a good category. My early nominees for 2021. Let's get rid of them in advance. All the guys who were in the newcomer award. Rusevori, Rodionov, Davidovich, Fokina, Kasmenovich, who in my opinion is the single most underrated tennis player right now on the ATP Tour. I think Zach Sfida, Tiago Sabathvild, Sebastian Korda, Thomas Mahak, Jason Sung, Jensen Brooksby, all early nominees for the look out for them because uh, they're going to be coming in 2021. Some other ones. People don't talk about how good Ugo and Bear was to end 2020. I can lock that one in. Another one, lock this in now. You heard it on the GSP Award Show first. People don't talk, Gil, about enough about how good Daniil Medvedev is on serve. You know, I don't think people talk about the fact that he's six foot six. I don't think people talk about, uh, you know, the fact that he's got that to work with, that height, the range he can have. It, it hasn't been said yet. I actually do think as of right now, his first serve is se- severely underrated. We don't talk enough about how much that serve, you know, how many options that serve affords him. But he's going to make a big jump in 2021, and then that's going to be all everyone talks about. Dude, people are so confused about Daniil Medvedev. The analysis is all over the place, okay? Because <laughs> not only do people say like, oh, like we don't talk about his serve. They're also like... Man, Daniil Medvedev, you forget he's six foot six because he moves so well. Mm-hmm. Or people don't realize that that he he can defend with the best of them. Don't let his height fool you. Six foot six, but he can defend. It's like, yeah, that's the point of him. That that is him. He is elite defensively, and he is also six foot six. And probably we could be five years down the road and people will still be using his height as a dichotomy against him defending well and it's gonna get tired yeah i no, i completely agree with you i think he is going to qualify for a lot of people don't talk about because there are just so many different things uh that he does very very well did i use dichotomy right it's been a while since i've taken the sats <sighs> i stopped listening halfway through no i'm just kidding yes <laughs> you use dichotomy perfectly correctly no you're 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 right there is a dichotomy um but yes, I, I, the the thing that I noticed is I was like, all right, I'm going to blitz through these awards. That was a five minute award. I apologize. I promised listeners home stretch here of this award show. Tennis Twitter Player of the Year. This is just the Ooh. most popular player according to Tennis Twitter. Here are the nominees. You tell me who you're going with. A member of the Big Three: Brandon Nakashima, Carlos Alcaraz, Stan Wawrinka, Gael Monfils. Who's the most popular on Tennis Twitter in terms of a, a Twitter account? Yeah, no, no, it's not who gets followed the most. Who sets tennis Twitter the most ablaze? Like, who's the person that if you, like, is the person tennis Twitter, is your player of the year? Just in 2020, this is the person tennis Twitter talked about the most. Hmm. Monfils is up there, but I got to say um, Andy Murray. Andy Murray on the Instagram wow. live. Wow. <laughs> Wow. See, I probably I'm, go Djokovic because between the Adria tour, between mm-hmm. anti-vax, between PTPA, between all of these different things, he's probably the yeah. guy who received the most attention. The Nakashima, it was a not, you know, 2019 was the hot girl summer, right? 2020 was the Nakashima summer. Like it was on tennis Twitter. Everyone had to fire your Nakashima look out for him. He's going to be a problem take. And it was... I don't know if I enjoyed it as much as it frustrated me. It was somewhere in between. That was an excellent I, dichotomy. I have a shout out. An excellent dichotomy <laughs> of joy and frustration, Gil. <laughs> uh, shirtless Favrinka. Yeah, that's why he was the nominee. Favrinka? Exactly. Oh, okay. absolutely. Okay. That's why he belongs in this category because yeah. he was one of the finalists. I think it's got to be Djokovic, though, right? 
Yeah. I was between Djokovic and, look, I guess Novak probably got as much attention for his Instagram lives with that dude who, like, says not to drink water or something like that <laughs> as uh, Andy Murray got for his interviews with uh, with Monfils and Kyrgios. And remember when Kyrgios drank too much wine and oh, they had to get him off the Instagram live? That These were the wild times of our lives. We were locked down in our homes with nothing to look forward to. And there was Nick Kyrgios just on his eighth bottle of wine <laughs> to yeah. entertain us. Yeah. Without, look, I, the reason I wanted to give this award to Djokovic is he needed an award on my ballot. And I just think this one fits him best because I have team as player of the year, but Djokovic was the guy who dominated so many of the headlines. And that gets us to our next award. You know, Benjamin Franklin, for those of you who didn't watch National Treasure, I suppose, or aren't a big Benjamin Franklin historic uh, follower, or I suppose follower, you don't have to be a historic follower. Anyways, uh, he had a pseudonym that he used to publish pieces with in the local paper, uh, an RIP local papers, but in his pseudonym was Silence Do Good. It was Mrs. Silence Do Good, and that's just one of my favorite names, Silence Do Good. If I was to restart this podcast, I would just introduce myself as, you know, I'm Wolf Blitzer's cousin, Silence Do Good. That would be my name. Moving forward, uh, but I wanted to flip the script here because it just quickly again some of the things the silence do bad award because there were some moments of silence some miscues across the board that absolutely have to be remembered from this season. For, first and foremost, Alex Virev off court allegations of uh, physical and uh, emotional abuse of Olga Sharipova, uh, the silence of the ATP tour, the lack of response from the ATP tour uh, in terms of how they're handling the situation did by the way, for Nicolas Basilashvili, who continues to face very similar allegations in court, uh, and yet they continue to let him play. I think those qualify, and those are things we're absolutely going to remember from this season. I think everything surrounded the pandemic, player relief, the resumption of tennis, the lack of transparency with the media about certain aspects. I think there were miscues, certainly. I think when you think of, you know, I do think overall the ATP, probably a B-plus performance, the fact that we saw as much tennis as we did, but certainly there were some miscues along the way. I think the PTPA has to receive this award. It looks like the PTPA might actually shut down before it actually launches, and the fact that they rolled out without any women was just a, a critical sin. How can you be the Professional Tennis Players Association and only represent the men? Uh, that was a cardinal flaw. And then the Djokovic-Adria Tour. I think those are these are all silence to bad awards. We knew it was a bad idea going in, how public they were being with everything, how open everything was, and obviously multiple players come back with COVID-19. It was genuinely a super event those are my nominees did i miss anything Whew, what a year yeah um get that out of the way quickly don't worry it's all yeah. fun after this one right uh hey um okay are we talking about uh, the award goes to the worst thing that that happened on a it's on not a even an award basis. it's just am i missing anything because there were the you know, obviously no yeah. right right we don't want to compare maybe but but you yeah. hit on yeah you, you hit on everything if i can if i can give you the most feel-good, positive story of the yes. ATP this Silence season. Silence Do Good Award. Give it to me. Silence Do Good Award is Australian bushfire relief. Absolutely. Tons and tons of money raised by the ATP and WTA players with their aces and their uh, exhibitions, and it was that was great to see. Yeah, I agree with you completely. All right, last two. Home stretch. This is a very, very quick one. The Nobody Makes Me Bleed My Own Blood Award. Westoff, play the clip. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. 
Nobody. Uh, obviously, this is named after the biggest badass of all time. My boy, White Goodman, of the best comedy movie of the 21st century, Dodgeball. We'll have that debate a different time, Gil. But this award goes to the guy who you'd least want to fuck with on tour. I mean, straight up, who do you not want to mess with? And the reason I wanted to name this award is simply so that I could spend 30 seconds just saying, I love Sasha Bublik. I've said it before. I'll say it again. He's Nick Kyrgios with a worse press agent. Like, he does everything Kyrgios does. The underhand serves, the bombastic performances, the drop shots, the degree of entertainment. But there's so, there's less off-court fluff, I suppose. And he hasn't had a big breakthrough to the degree that Kyrgios has. But I just wouldn't want to fuck with him. Like, I just really would not. Like, I just think he is not a guy you want to mess with. I think he's going to hit his bombs. I think he's going to do his thing. I think for the longest time period, Rafael Nadal probably won this award, especially when, you know, he was particularly thick and there was a lot of stuff coursing through his veins. Um, But I just, I I think, I think Sasha Bublik is the Nobody Makes Me Be My Own Blood Award recipient for 2020. I think Dan Evans is a close, you know, tied for second Mm. with Rafa, who you still don't want to mess with, particularly on clay. But it's got to go to my boy Bublik. Hmm. This is this is interesting. Some other nominees, by the way, Lorenzo Sinego, who I just feel like if I messed with too much would throw his racket at me. And then Riley Opelka, who is just like, there's a lot of Riley Opelka. I'm not messing with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bublik would throw hands. I think Medvedev showed that he's not afraid. Okay, we all yeah, know the moment. Yeah, but, but, but is he? What, you think it's fake? No, it's Look, not I know, it's fake. I know, I know he's a string bean, but that doesn't. Yeah, but I think he is someone who would be like. Look. He's a lover. It's, yeah, you no, know, he would just be like, I'm fine to jostle back and forth with you verbally, but, like, let's not punch one another. Like, come on. Yeah, we're, we're like, I'm with say you. mean things, but don't punch me. I'm with you. Okay, I, I I got it. It's Borna Chorich. Ooh. Borna Chorich. Ooh. Borna Chorich will, will get after it, all right? Mm. Like, he will – by the way, son of a boxer, okay? So you know he grew up. And you know he knows what he's doing, all right? He knows – He's got a jab. He's got a feint. All right. I'm a big uh, advocate of fighting is a sport. It's not about who's the biggest. It's also about who's the most skilled. And uh, I think if the ATP does an impromptu UFC event, I'm putting Chorich on the top of the card. Yeah, I mean, Millman would be your welterweight champion too. I just, I'd be like, get me out of the ring with him. You know, <laughs> we're not tattooists. You know, Bublik, Evans, uh, <laughs> all have tattoos like it's not that we're anti-tattoo Chorich is a really good one to throw in here oh that's a that's a good nominee i mean fist fighting who's the guy most likely to throw a punch it will always be dan evans dan evans is yeah. one line call away from a fist fight in every match <laughs> and it's just like he could probably win this award and i also wanted to talk about him again because he was phenomenal this season huh can I? Can we you go get, the other end? The least likely to throw hands. Yeah, I mean Yoshi Nishioka. He's your <laughs> sportsmanship award winner. I love. I mean, he's the kindest human in all. God. Of yeah, he's the best. Um, I'm. I want to throw uh, one that you might not think of. Benoit Pair would be a terrible fighter. <laughs> he just yeah, wouldn't. He couldn't fight. He's been in a bar fight by proxy. Like just in his like in his circle, one of his guys has said something questionable, and then they're fighting. Like I feel like he's experienced enough that he's thrown hands, but he's never going to start the fight. 
Sure, sure. I feel like he... I feel like... I don't know what it is about him. Uh, just his personality. I'm just... Uh, I could see him just not... I could see him getting beat up. Yeah. No, for me... <laughs> I don't want to get anyone in trouble. I'm going to get someone in trouble. Whatever, I'll say. If you're still listening at an hour, 22 minutes into this award show, you deserve this little nugget. The player who is most likely to be punched in the face, if that's what you're mm-hmm. asking me, is Max Cressy. Just trust me. Just like, okay. you, you sure. trust me on that one. It's the, it's the answer. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I think the one most likely to throw hands. You know what? I've changed my mind. Dan Evans, you're the winner of the Nobody Makes Me Bleed My Own Blood Award. Uh, you are the White Goodman of professional tennis. So quick change there, but shout out to you, the boob. Shout out to all of our finalists. All right. Last award, and this is a purely subjective award. It is the Serena Williams Award for being the face of American tennis. And I think pretty unequivocally since probably 2006, 2005, I don't know. Roddick probably won the status after he won the U.S. Open. Serena pretty quickly took it back. But she's won this award pretty unequivocally for the past 15 years. I do think 2020 may be the first year she's lost the mantle. And so my nominees, and this can go men and women. You can throw in any of the men, the Bryans, Isner, Fritz, Opelka, if you believe in that. But it probably comes down to Serena, Sophia Kennan, Coco Goff, and then I threw Bethany Maddox-Sands in that conversation as well. Gil Gross, my last award for you for this 2020 season to put a bow on it all. Who is the Serena Williams Award winner for the face of American Tennis? It's Coco Goff. 2020 was was yeah. a year where, look, I mean, social justice was was a big part of of what occurred this year, and the way Coco hit that head on really propelled her, just like Osaka, you know, to another level in pop culture. And uh, I think that will continue. I don't think it's a, a flash in, in the pan. Uh, just the the human aspect that Coco showed. And continues to back it up with her tennis and is at an insane level for her age. You know, I I think that Coco right now is the face. Honest to God, the winner of this award, I mean, like, it's hard to disagree with you. Because she – like, honestly, God, the winner of this war could be Naomi Osaka. That was what I was going to say. It's because – I know she's not American, but it's like if you are a fan of American tennis, if you are an – excuse me, if you are an American that's a fan of tennis, you are probably more familiar with Naomi Osaka after Serena Williams than any other player not in the big three. And I know to disqualify them, you should probably have to disqualify Osaka as well. But Coco Goff is right in there in that conversation. And I just always feel so – bad because the best tennis player just by sheer level by sheer results in, by, for Americans was Sophia Kennan like hands down mm-hmm. Sophia Kennan put forward the best results she was unbelievable during the exhibition period as well was probably the best women's player during the world team tennis season and those little things have to matter she made two grand slam finals she won her first grand slam all of these different things and yet you're right. It's crazy that she is not the face of American women's tennis. Is that you don't see her billboard in the huge Nike ads. You haven't seen that big – well, of course, she's a FILA athlete. I suppose that's why you don't see her in the Nike ads. But you haven't seen the big <laughs> Sophia Kennan FILA campaign or the Sophia Kennan Babolat campaign or just – maybe they exist and I haven't seen them yet. But you do see the Coco Goff New Balance campaign. You do see all of these different entities lining up to have Coco Goff – uh, er, to give Coco Golf their services, 
Uh, I mean, I. By the way, Serena Williams is still Serena freaking Williams. I think I agree with you. I think yeah. it is Coco Goff, though. It's interesting with Kenan because uh, I, I really don't think, like, I don't think my friends really know who she is, unfortunately. And I'm talking about my non tennis fan friends. Uh, so, and they all know who Coco Goff is. And she became so mainstream as soon as she beat Venus Williams at, at Wimbledon a year ago. My thing with Kenan, okay, how can she reach that next level of popularity? I, I'm almost wondering, is she going to be a heel? Like, should she should she play the heel? Because I love the way she acts on the court. I, I really like that kind of feisty competitor. But we've seen that go the other way. We've seen people kind of turn against that. And maybe that is her best path to uh, mainstream appeal. I don't I think... I don't know why any player in the top 10 wouldn't wear Nike, but that's my bias. And, like, that's – if you want to say that's an elitism, if you want to say that is whatever, that's fine. But in my objective opinion, the biggest athletes, the most marketable athletes across every different sport have worn the biggest brands. And with all due respect to Fila and the investment of Fila into the sport of tennis is a net benefit. If Nike controls the entire market share, has a monopoly on it, that's not good for anyone uh, because Nike will never care enough about tennis probably that it's worthwhile for them to just soak up all of the top athletes. That being said, I just – I don't want to be disrespectful to Fila because I would get excited about wearing Fila. People should be excited about wearing Fila. They have some really cool gear. But the majority of people don't get excited about a Fila athlete. You get excited about the Nike campaign or you get excited about this generational young talent. And, of course, for Coco Goff, she's broken through in a way that Sophia Kennan hasn't. And to be honest, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with race. A lot of it has to do with Coco Goff being outspoken in these causes for social justice. She has brought attention on herself, used her platform for things outside of the tennis court. And Sophia Kennan... If she has done that, I apologize because it hasn't gotten the attention. I haven't noticed it at least to the extent that Coco Goff has made it so much a part of her identity. And I don't think Sophia Kennan, by the way, doesn't – there is no moral obligation for Sophia Kennan to make fighting for racial and social justice causes a part of her career, a part of her identity. Sophia Kennan is – she can be the best Sophia Kennan and whatever Sophia Kennan she wants to be. But in terms of breaking through, I would say that has to be considered part of the reason why Coco Goff has broken through because for someone at her age to be doing what she is doing and advancing these causes off the court, everyone, tennis fan or not, can acknowledge that as special. Yeah, I think age is also a factor for Goff. But yep. when you when you point out when you point out Fila as something that holds back Kenan, well, you're giving Coco Goff even more credit now because she wears New Balance. And New Balance certainly true, isn't – is that any more relevant yeah. than, than – feel? Well, I just think, as I said, I think her off-court causes transcend anything for that sure. she does on the court. And she right. – and for – again, you would talk about it, it's the perfect nexus of age, uh, age uh, activism, and – and on-court success and professional success is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just – it's that perfect nexus where all three things are working so well for her that it's impossible to not be anything but impressed or impossible to be anything but impressed with Goff. And that's why she has already begun to transcend the sporting world in my opinion. 
And I think it's yeah. – I think for Kenan, it's that because she doesn't have that element to her – and I'm not saying she doesn't. Again, I, this is not meant to be disrespectful to Sophia Kenan. This is just a matter of measuring popularity. Because she isn't as prominent in those areas, to have that going against her and to not be a Nike athlete, it's an, it's uh, it's a plethora of factors against her, if that makes sense. But she's got to do something – to break through to the mainstream. You know, the, the fact is, though, we agree that she hasn't. And uh, now some players don't want to, which is totally fine. Uh, you know, if, if 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 you're okay just playing tennis matches and trying to get popular through results, well, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, really. You, you normally have to do more to get people to care about you. Um, but if she wants to take that next leap in popularity. She she needs to show something um, about her personality or, or her game or, or some kind of claim to fame for the mainstream, for the casuals to kind of latch onto, which Coco Goff has. Yeah, it's so funny, though, because, like, if you told Coco or Mr. Goff, hey, I can guarantee you Sophia Kennan's success at by her age for Coco. Do you want that or do you want the unknown of maybe she can be even better? And I think if you ask the Goffs, they would be like, no, 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 we'll take the Kennan path. Like that works for us. If she can be where Sophia is at age 21, that that means everything has gone correctly. And Sophia Kennan is as good of a young athlete on the as we have seen come through American tennis in quite a bit of time. Probably the youngest slam champion on the American women's side since Andy Roddick won his men's slam and then obviously Serena Williams before that as well Venus Williams too but she's that good of an athlete it's just to yeah. your point if I asked my friends my roommates from college casual non-tennis fans you know hardcoreers hey do you know who Sophia Kennan is they'd be like I don't think so I mean some of them would be like yes because you've talked about her incessantly Gruskin but other than that no <laughs> like I don't actually know who she is um like I, I agree with you but if I went to them hey do you know who Coco Goff is they would say oh yeah of course yeah, well, one more thought that that just popped into my head. Maybe it's that Kennan's runs were not at Wimbledon and U.S. Open. Those tend to be the two tournaments that get a little bit more American attention. Australian Open, you have the time zone thing. And French Open, uh, you have a couple factors. Again, poor timing. Everyone's working while the French Open is going on. And Wimbledon and the U.S. Open o- over the summer uh, tend to get more attention. And Kennan's runs uh, have come in Australia and France. Yeah, no, I I think that's a fair point. And again, I think the one thing that is uh, clear for both Kennan, for uh, Coco Goff, for Katie McNally, and Lee, Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafo, Riley Opelka, all of these guys, Taylor Fritz, they're all so young. And so it really is an exciting time to be an American tennis fan because on both the men's and women's side, there are a bunch of different names who could hit and who could become, you know, obviously Sophie Kennan already Grand Slam champion, but there is that and more for the future of American tennis. Of course, talk about workhorses. I know you, Gil Gross, are a workhorse. It's a school night for you, which is kind of hilarious in my mind. But uh, even beyond that, of course, uh, you've got Monday Match Analysis. You've got three, the tennis show. You've got Syracuse stuff. Uh, What else is going on and where can our listeners follow all of your work? Well, I'm on break, all right? So I I, I would hope it's not a a school night. But uh, (laughs) yeah, Gil Gross on YouTube. That is the channel. Monday Match Analysis is the show. 
my my show about the big three is with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We focus on Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. Um, I am on both YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, and course. I v- v- very much appreciate you having me on. I always have tons of fun uh, l- laughing up a storm with you and uh, embracing debate. And it's always a pleasure. Yeah, I said the over-under was six hours. We hit the under, so at least we have that going for us. Heck yeah. Yeah, I'll throw one more fun one at you. Do we have a new Grand Slam champion in 2021 on the men's side, yes or no? Yep, I think so. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to tell me who it is. That's all I wanted to hear. I agree with you, and that seems to be the consensus of so many people we talk to. So hopefully, again, we will see a 2021 season that follows up on so many of these successful leads we had built in 2020. But again, as you mentioned, the show is Monday Match Analysis, the YouTube channel, the Twitter, Gil Gross. Go find him. He is my eyebrow nemesis, but of course, he is always one of our Cracked Rackets returning champions as well. Gil, happy holidays to you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, we will chat with you soon. You too, absolutely. Thanks again. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Gil Gross handing out our awards for the 2020 ATP season. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. And if you're not, seriously, go check out the Monday Match Analysis Show. Go check out 3, the tennis podcast. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Cracked Rackets, you will certainly enjoy what Gil is doing as well. And a huge thank you to him again for taking the time to chat with us. But of course, we've got so much other content here to get all of you listeners ready for 2021. If you missed our WTA award show with Courtney Nguyen. You can find that here on this Great Shot podcast feed as well as on our website, CrackedRackets.com. If you have missed any of our Next Gen 2.0 ATP content mix, any of Judson Wall's weekly review previews, you have missed any of our College Contender Series breaking down the top 11 uh, teams heading into the 2021 ITA Men's D1 season. That and so much more. Again, all of it can be found on our website, CrackedRackets.com. You need those more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Crack Raggets. You want to message me directly? I am at Great Shot Pod. Shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in day out shout out as well to our friends at DraftKings tennis season in 2021 again almost upon us to be ready to get in on the action with our friends at DraftKings just go to dkng.co slash cracked open to play along with us I should also mention again we've got some really cool things going on here at Cracked Rackets go check out our YouTube channel you can find our new cross court chronicles series telling the story of Cameron Moffitt who journeyed across the globe using his uh, through uh, his tennis world and it's fantastic journey you know in a time when none of us have been traveling or really been able to go anywhere it's that sort of uh you know you can sort of get lost in Cameron's story it's a really really fun series I think all of you listeners will enjoy of course also go check out the deciding point and all the fantastic things super producer Daniel Westoff is doing on YouTube I know you'll all enjoy that Cracked Rackets channel but oh and last but not least of course happy holidays to all of you listeners out there Hanukkah Kwanzaa, Christmas, there's so many other holidays I'm forgetting. That's why 
You know what? No, I almost got into the political rant. Happy Holidays has nothing to do with an assault on Christmas. Saying Happy Holidays is like, look, I'm not sure what you celebrate. Maybe it's not Hanukkah. It's not, you know, Christmas. It's not Kwanzaa. Maybe you're just someone who celebrates the fact that you got a package today. Oh, my God, I got a package on December 24th. It's holy shit, I got a package day. That's good enough for you. That's good enough for me. That's why you just say Happy Holidays. Uh, It has nothing to do with an assault on one religion or the other. Anyways, a huge Happy Holidays from all of us here at Cracked Rackets to all of you listeners out there, whether you are celebrating Christmas with your family, whether you are staying at home this holiday, because of course all of us COVID-19, again, we want to stay safe, stay healthy, the vaccine on the horizon. We just got to do our part a little bit longer than we can go back to living the lives all of us enjoy living so much. And, you know, if we here at Cracked Rackets could be any solace, any comfort, any uh, company for you here this holiday season, then we're doing our job. So on behalf of, you know, Dalton Thienem and Daniel Westoff, Jamie McDonald, all of us here at Cracked Rackets. A happy holiday from our season, uh, our season, from our family to you. We love all of you, and of course, we hope all of you stick with us through 2021. As we know, it should be a very fun season. But with that in mind, for our wonderful guest, Gil Gross, our super producers, Max Fleeker and Daniel Westoff, our friends at DraftKings, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Happy holidays to all of you listeners. And of course, hey, great shot, and we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.